take a Bible out and find Psalm 110. You can also open up your bulletin, and there is an outline. You can follow along if you'd like to do that. Someday you might find yourself on Jeopardy. And you might be on Jeopardy, and they might have a category on Psalm 110. And you might need to know a few things about Psalm 110 so that you don't look like a fool on Jeopardy. And so these are not on your outline. These are just some freebies I'm going to give you. That's Martin Luther, right? Father of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther loved Psalm 110. In fact, he loved it so much, he took these seven verses and he wrote a commentary on it. And the commentary was 120 pages. It took him 120 pages to explain everything that he needed to say about Psalm 110. Here's another picture. This is Oliver Cromwell. He was Lord Protector of England in uh, the 1600s. He led a war against Scotland, and uh, I think that was about 1650. Interesting fact, right before he went out and started the war with Scotland, he preached a one-hour sermon on Psalm 110. There you go. That might be on there. Jeopardy, Psalm 110. A lot of different classical composers Lots and lots and lots have looked at Psalm 110 and read it and thought about the words and set it to music. And so here's a few of them. Uh, A guy named Vivaldi on the left, Handel in the middle, and Mozart on the far right. Dozens upon dozens of other guys that you know and you've heard of have written musical scores inspired by Psalm 110. So it's a very famous psalm. In all seriousness, one thing you do need to know about Psalm 110 is that the New Testament refers to Psalm 110 more than any other psalm. There's 27 quotations or allusions to this particular chapter in the Bible. So the book of Psalms, one of the most quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament, and the most quoted psalm. The most referenced psalm. When the New Testament authors sat down and they're thinking about the most important passages in the Old Testament that help us understand the truth about Jesus, this was one that they came back to over and over and over and over again. You also need to know that Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. All that means is that Psalm 110 points us directly to Jesus. Now, if you've been here over the last few weeks as we've jumped into this series on the book of Psalms, I hope you've picked up on the fact that the book of Psalms as a whole, in every page, every chapter, every psalm, it points us toward gospel truths. So the book of Psalms talks to us about the holiness of God and the character of God. You need to understand that if you're going to understand the good news about Jesus. The book of Psalms we've seen, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, talks to us very plainly about our sin, something that you need to understand if you're going to understand the good news about Jesus. The book of Psalms teaches us the importance of God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. Again, something you need to understand if you're going to understand the truth about Jesus. So it's filled with truths that are pointing us toward the gospel. Messianic Psalms are a little bit different. They don't just point us toward the gospel. They don't just give us gospel truths. They point us directly to Jesus, the Messiah. 
And so we looked at Psalm 2. That was the second psalm that we looked at. Corey preached Psalm 1, then I talked about Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It points you directly to Jesus. And Psalm 110, if there is any messianic psalm, it's Psalm 10, and it points you directly to Jesus. Now, one last thing you need to understand to make sense of this psalm, and this gets a little bit complicated and convoluted, but I'm going to make it as clear as I can, and you really got to understand this if you want to understand what's going on in Psalm 110, okay? Put this next one up, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all caps, is the English translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah, okay? This is, when you read this in the Old Testament, this is the text telling you that the word you're looking at there in Hebrew, in the original language, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is the divine name. This is not the Hebrew word Elohim that means God in general. That's our word God, Elohim. They had a word for that. This is not that. This is like you are Bob or Sue or Mary. And God, the true God, is Yahweh or Jehovah. Older tradition tended to pronounce this word as Jehovah. Newer tradition tends to pronounce it as Yahweh. In Hebrew, it's four consonants. And originally, when the Hebrew text was written down, there were no vowels. So they just knew how to pronounce it. We look back on this, and we're not exactly sure how they pronounced it. But the word is Yahweh or Jehovah. God's personal name as he revealed himself to Israel. The second thing you've got to get is that capital L, lowercase r, lowercase o-r-d, excuse me, is the English translation of the Hebrew word Adonai, Lord. Basically, this is a term of respect. At times, you could use this word Adonai like we use the word sir. Just somebody who's more important than you, has a position or a status over you, you want to show respect to them, you could call them Lord, Adonai. At other times, it's used to refer to God himself. He is the Adonai. He is the Lord. Ultimate respect ought to be paid to him. And you can use the word to refer directly to God. Now, when I put this up on the screen, you may be wondering, there's a really good question that should be rolling through your brain. If the all caps Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, if that really means Yahweh, why don't we just put Yahweh in the Bible? Why put another word that it doesn't mean the same thing and put it in all caps to make a distinction? Why do it this way instead of just putting Yahweh or Jehovah? And the answer goes back to ancient Jewish, Jewish practice. The Jews, at some point in their history, became so afraid of taking God's name in vain that they stopped saying it altogether. Remember, one of the Ten Commandments says this. You shall not take the name of the Lord, all caps. You shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. For the Lord, Yahweh, will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That's one of the most interesting commandments to me because it adds on this line that says, by the way, if you break this commandment, God's not going to hold you guiltless. To which you and I say, that's kind of the point of commandments, right? If you break them, you're guilty. God's not going to just forget that. But this one spells it out just so you're not confused. Do not take God's name in vain. Always use it with respect. And if you don't do that, God will not hold you 
guiltless. And Jewish theologians at some point became so afraid that they would accidentally use God's name without the respect it deserved that they stopped saying it altogether. They wouldn't pronounce it. In fact, when they would read through the scriptures and they would come to this four-letter name, the divine name, Yahweh, Jehovah, they wouldn't say it. They wouldn't skip it. They just substituted the word Adonai. The text said Yahweh, but they said Adonai because they were so afraid that they would break the third commandment. Many, many years later, when English translators are putting the original languages into English, they kept that tradition. And they said, we're not going to write it. They didn't say it. We're not going to write it. And we're going to write what they said. We're going to write Adonai or Lord. But then you see that's pretty confusing because then you got one English word for two different Hebrew words. And as an English reader who doesn't speak Hebrew, you look at all these occurrences of the word Lord and you say, well, what's it talking about? Is the word really Yahweh or is the word really Adonai? We can't tell the difference. So to make the distinction, they put Yahweh in all caps. Now, I know that sounds like a sort of an antiquated, old, boring, maybe history lesson. But you really got to understand these two words and what they mean. All caps, Lord, God's name, Yahweh, the divine name. Lowercase O-R-D, Lord, a title for respect a title for somebody above you, okay? You keep those two things in mind and look with me at Psalm 110. It's a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, or if you're reading it literally, you would say Yahweh says to my Adonai. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we've worshipped you in song this morning. We've invited your spirit to be present among us. We've sung about your grace and your mercy that you showed us at the cross. And we pray now that you would speak to us through your word. That we would read this old song, this ancient poem. And that we would see the timeless truth that's in it. And we would understand how it applies to our life today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you read this, right there in verse 1, it's clear there's a conversation taking place, right? Look at verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. And so you've got to answer a couple of questions before we jump in and talk about how it directly points us to Jesus. The questions you've got to ask is, who's doing the talking, who's doing the listening, and who are they talking about? And so we're going to answer those, okay? Number one, how do we understand this conversation? King David is the author. This is really not debatable. 
I've told you several times in this series that the titles that you find above verse 1 in the book of Psalms are original. They're not added in by editors later. They're part of the text. And the title in this psalm says it is a psalm of David. David wrote it. Jesus agreed with this in Matthew 22. He's having a debate with some Pharisees. He quotes directly from Psalm 110, and he follows that quote up with, David says. Jesus thought David wrote it. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, is preaching a sermon. He quotes Psalm 110, and he follows it up with, David said this. So you can agree with Jesus, you can agree with Peter, you can trust the title in this psalm, David is the author of Psalm 110. Secondly, Yahweh is the speaker. He's the main speaker in the psalm. And that's just plain in verse 1 where it says, The Lord, and it's all caps, Yahweh says. It's again written in verse 4. The Lord, all caps, Yahweh has sworn. He's made a verbal promise. So Yahweh is the one speaking. Thirdly, you need to understand the Messiah is in focus. He's the one that's being talked about. Verse 1 is an interesting verse, and it gave the Jews trouble for a long time. Because David is the author. And when I had you fill in that blank, I didn't just have you fill in David is the author. I had you fill in King David is the author. The king No one's greater than the king other than God himself. And David writes in verse 1 that the Lord, Yahweh, says to my, or David's, Lord, Adonai. And Jewish theologians scratched their heads about this for a long time. And they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. David was the king. No one's above the king. No one deserves from the lips of the king to hear this title, Adonai, except God himself. But he's not talking about God here because God is the one speaking. David's listening and Yahweh is speaking. He's not talking about himself. Who's he talking to? Who is David's Lord? Who would David come to and humble himself to show this person respect that David, the king of Israel, would call this person his Lord? And the answer is the Messiah. Jesus makes this point in Matthew 22. He says, listen, who else is David talking to when he talks about his Lord than the Messiah? And Peter says the same thing in Acts chapter 2. And the book of Hebrews in the first chapter says, look, Psalm 110 is pointing you straight to the Messiah. David is listening. He's the author. Yahweh the Lord is speaking. And he's speaking to The Messiah. And so you can sort of summarize it like this. David is listening to a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. That's an amazing conversation to eavesdrop on. The Father, Yahweh, is speaking to the Messiah, the Son, and he's telling him some very important things. In fact, he's making him promises. This is a conversation within the Godhead And God, the Father, is promising God, the Son, several things. Look at the text, verse 1. Sit at my right hand. The right hand of God. In the ancient world, to sit at the right hand of a king meant that you had a position of power and authority. 
The only time we read about someone doing this in the Old Testament is when Bathsheba sits at the right hand of Solomon, her son, who is the king of Israel. And she sits in this position because she is sharing in his power and authority because of her relationship to Solomon. To sit at the right hand of king of the king means you share in his power, you share in his rule, you share in his authority. And the father says to the son, I want you to sit at my right hand and share these things with me. And then he says something fascinating. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right out of the gate, you're going to have to have a concept, an idea of the Messiah that includes the Messiah having enemies. He has enemies. And the father says to the son, sit at my hand and share in this authority And eventually, your enemies will be in subjection to you. You can Google this. You can look it up. There's all sorts of ancient pictures and reliefs. I saw several from Egypt that are pictures showing the enthronement of a new king. In Egypt, it was a new pharaoh. And they would draw this new pharaoh, and he would be sitting on this throne, and underneath his feet, there would be little bitty people, his enemies. And they're saying, this is the new king, he's on the throne, and his enemies are now in subjection to him. And Psalm 110 is picking up on that, and it's saying, look, the son is going to share in the reign and the power and the authority of the father, and his enemies are going to be made to submit. Okay? That's the setup in verse 1. Now, the question we're going to ask and answer is very simple. What does Psalm 110 teach us about the Messiah? And I'm going to point out three things, and I'm just going to say to you up front, You're here on a Sunday morning in church. You've heard of Jesus, I'm going to presume. You've heard that Jesus died on a cross for you. You've heard that he has a wonderful plan for your life. I don't know what you've heard, but you've probably heard about Jesus. This morning as we work through Psalm 110, my challenge to you is to make sure that your picture of Jesus lines up with the biblical picture of Jesus. When I say Jesus and you think about the first things that come into your mind, I hope it's the things we're going to see in Psalm 110. So here we go. Number one, the Messiah is the King of Kings. The King of Kings. If you like to underline words, I'm going to tell you some words to underline in verse 2 and 3. Underline the word scepter. It's a kingly word. Underline the word rule. Verse 2, it's a kingly word. And then in verse 3, your people. A king has people. He has subjects. All of these words in verse 2 and 3 pointing you to the fact that the Messiah, the Lord in this passage, is the king of all kings. And I just want you to think back. Back for us, forward for Psalm 110. Think about the wise men coming to visit baby Jesus. You remember they thought that the king would be born in Jerusalem, so they go to Jerusalem and they visit Herod and they go to the palace and they say to him, where is the one who was to be born? They say, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? They're in the palace of the king. And they make the mistake of saying, where's the king? They're looking for a king. I want you to think about what Paul says to the church in Philippi, Philippians 2. He says to them that a day is coming when every knee will bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. His enemies will be in subjection. I want you to think about Luke 23, when Jesus is dying on the cross and Pilate puts this sign above his head. Do you remember what it said? This is Jesus, King of the Jews. I want you to think about what the Bible says in Revelation 19. We're going to read it in a minute. But it talks about Jesus as a king with a crown on his head on a war horse. And at the end of that passage, down in verse 19, we're going to read it. It says, he's the king of kings. Look, all of these passages, you go back and check them out this week. They're all pointing you straight back to Psalm 110 saying, this is the one that God promised to send, the king of all kings. This is him. The one born king of the Jews. The one who dies with a sign above his head. The king of the Jews. The one who who will have every person in subjection to him. Every knee bowing, every tongue confessing. Who will return as the king to rule all kings. This is him. This is the one Psalm 110 is talking about. You think about your conception of Jesus. When you think about Jesus, is that the first thing that pops into your mind? I think for a lot of people in the Bible Belt, they think of a guy who gives us some nice instructions, some good moral directives in life, who promises to answer all the things we ask him to do and meet all our needs and take care of all our problems. He's just like this big genie up in the sky. He's a nice uncle that gives you all these sort of goodies. Psalm 110 says, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's the king who will rule over all kings. Secondly, he's the great high priest. He's the king of kings. Secondly, Psalm 110 tells us he is the great high priest. Look at verse four. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is an interesting guy, Melchizedek. You read about him in three places in the Bible. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and Hebrews. Those are the only places he's mentioned. You read about this guy in Genesis 14, and you know from what his name is, Melchizedek, that his name literally means the king of righteousness. And Genesis 14 also tells us that he's the king of Salem, the ancient city of Jerusalem, and also tells tells us that he's the priest of God Most High. And he has this little brief interaction with Abraham. Abraham goes and he fights this battle, and Abraham's coming back home, and he passes by Salem, and Melchizedek comes out, and they have a little meal together, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham. It's interesting, because in Jewish culture, the greater person always blesses the lesser person. And up to this point, we think Abraham's the greatest guy on earth. All of a sudden, God just pops a guy into the story and says, no, this guy's greater. And they keep talking, and Abraham turns around and he takes a tithe, 10% of everything he just won in battle, and he just gives it to Melchizedek. The one who pays the tithes is less than the one who receives the tithes, and he just gives it over to this guy. Scholars say, who in the world is Melchizedek? You can find all kinds of answers. Let me give you a few answers from church history. I've already mentioned Martin Luther. I told you he wrote this big, long book on Psalm 110. Martin Luther said, this is interesting. I didn't know this until this week. Martin Luther said that Melchizedek was Shem, the son of Noah. Go back and do the math. The math works on the ages. And he said, this is actually Shem going by a new title, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. There's one explanation. Church father over on the top right, Origen, Origen said that Melchizedek was an angel. 
It's just an angel who appeared. Abraham gave him this money. That's his explanation. Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, we talked about him a few weeks ago when we talked about Augustine in Psalm 32. Ambrose looks at the story of Melchizedek, and he says this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. This is the second member of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, sort of just popping into the story for a minute and then popping back out before he's born as Jesus in Bethlehem. You can agree with any of those. I'm going to go with John Calvin on the bottom right. Nothing that we need to fight over, but I'm going to go with Calvin. Calvin said Melchizedek is a guy. He was a king of this ancient city. He was very important. He was very wealthy. He was very powerful. And he goes out and he has this conversation with Abraham, and he blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him this tithe. Now, you can take any one of those four that you want to take. Here's one thing we all agree on. When you're tracking along in Genesis 14... This guy Melchizedek pops into the story and then he pops right back out and you never hear from him again until Psalm 110, one verse in Psalm 110. And the book of Hebrews explains that and it says, look, Jesus is sort of like this Melchizedek guy. He's not part of the normal flow of of history here. He just pops in and then he pops out without lineage, without descendant, without ancestor. He's He's in and then he's out. Another interesting thing about Melchizedek is that he is called a priest and Psalm 110 says right here you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and I put there on the screen the Messiah is the great high priest Jesus is the great high priest there's one problem with me telling you that Jesus is the high priest in the Old Testament the priest came from the line of Levi Jesus came from the line of Judah The Judites were not allowed to serve as priests. But the author of Hebrews puts all this together and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus comes not from Moses' brother Aaron and the Levites. Jesus comes from the line of Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews says that's even better because Melchizedek was a priest to God hundreds and hundreds of years before Aaron was ever born. This is an older priesthood, and Jesus comes from this line according to the book of Hebrews. So he's the great high priest. And when you read about what the book of Hebrews has to say, this is the idea when it, when it says Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus came to this earth to offer a sacrifice that would pay the penalty for your sins. And for thousands and thousands of years, these high priests of Israel are offering sacrifices, one after another, goats, bulls, rams, birds, over and over and over and over again. And they go into the temple or they go into the tabernacle and they first offer a sacrifice for themselves and then they offer sacrifices for the people and they just repeat them over and over and over again. In the book of Hebrews, picking up on Psalm 110, says Jesus is a priest, but he's a little bit different. He's not just a high priest, he's the great high priest. And he came and he offered his life as a substitutionary sacrifice so that your sins could be forgiven. And he did it once and that was enough forever. It never needs to be repeated. It never needs to happen again. By one sacrifice, this great high priest has sanctified forever all of his people. Listen. When Jesus died on the cross, giving himself as a perfect, spotless sacrifice, he accomplished what he set out to accomplish.
That is to die for a people and to purchase them for God. He did that. He accomplished it. He did what he set out to do. He's the great high priest. The last thing you see in Psalm 110 is a little bit of a curveball. I'm guessing that you've thought before, okay, Jesus is the king. I've heard about that. He's the king of kings. Maybe you've sung that in the song at church. And I'm guessing you've heard Jesus died for you. Okay, he's the high priest. And you put that together and you say, that makes sense. I've heard of that. Here's the last thing you see in Psalm 110 about Jesus, about the Messiah. He is a warrior judge. A warrior judge. I'm going to mention some words you can underline in verse 5, 6, and 7. He's the warrior judge. Look at the word shatter, verse 5. The end of verse 5, the word wrath. Verse 6, judgment. Verse 6, corpses, dead bodies. Verse 6, shatter. This idea in verse 7 that he'll drink from the brook and he'll lift up its head. It's the image of a king or a warrior winning a battle. And he takes this drink and he stands up in victory. He's the warrior judge. I'm just telling you, a lot of the folks that I talk to live in the Bible Belt. Folks in Odessa, folks in Oklahoma, folks in Kentucky. They kind of struggle with this mental category of Jesus being the warrior judge. But hold your spot here in Psalm 110. Flip all the way to the back of your Bible. Look at Revelation 19. Revelation 19, look at verse 11. This is Jesus when he comes back. This has to be part of what you think about when you think about Jesus. Revelation 19, 11. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it, Jesus, is called faithfulness, faithful and true and in righteousness... He judges and he makes war. He's the warrior judge. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed, you ready for this, in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Verse 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You understand, the next time you see Jesus, which for us will be the first time we see Jesus, that's what it's going to look like. That's an amazing thought. You know, my guess is when I throw out the name Jesus, a variety of different things pop into your head. Depending on your political persuasion, you might think of a political revolutionary, somebody who came along and sort of turned the status quo up on its head. He 
He did that. Some of you probably think about a hippie-looking guy. Maybe he has long, flowing hair. He's got eyes that sparkle, and he's got a sort of a, a grin on his face. And he just walks around. He's very laid back, and he's just sort of telling stories and parables and little pithy statements. You think about a, a sage, a teacher. Some of you, to be honest, when I say Jesus, you think about a baby in a manger. You never get past Bethlehem. You just think about cute baby Jesus. Or maybe you get stuck not in Bethlehem, but in Jerusalem on the cross. And you, you picture when I say Jesus, a bloody, beaten, dying man nailed to two pieces of wood. Maybe that's your, your picture of Jesus. For a lot of people, their, their picture of Jesus is this guy who looks a little bit effeminate, and he's sitting up in heaven, sort of like a male Mona Lisa with just sort of a funny-looking smile on his face, and he's just sort of looking down on us. You've seen paintings like that. My challenge to you this morning is just to listen to what the Bible has been saying to us for thousands of years. If you want to know the real Jesus, you've got to get all that mumbo-jumbo out of your head. You can't even let yourself get stuck in Bethlehem, and you can't even let yourself get stuck in Jerusalem on the cross. You've got to understand that Jesus, the Messiah, is the king who will rule over every square inch of all of creation. All of it will be brought into subjection to him. All of it. You've got to understand that he is the high priest who gave his life for you. He's not just a guy who tells you, try to be a better person and maybe you can get into heaven someday. He's a man who died your death. He offered a sacrifice so that you could be forgiven. He's the great high priest. He didn't come to tell you how you could work your way into heaven. He came to bring you into his kingdom by dying for you, offering himself as a sacrifice. And he's the warrior judge. Every person will stand before him and give account for every action, Every word, every thought, every emotion, all of it, all will be brought into subjection. All will stand before this judge. And my challenge to you is to make sure that when you leave today, you know the real Jesus. Not some silly, sentimentalized Christmas version or crucifix version of Jesus. The real guy that the book of Psalms has been talking about for thousands of years, that the New Testament shouts out as loud as it can, this is the guy. This is the one. You read about him in Psalm 10. This is the one that you would know the true Jesus, the real Jesus. And my challenge for those of you who know him is that before we leave today, you would worship him. You would acknowledge him as your king. You would acknowledge him as your priest. You acknowledge him as your judge. Let me pray for you. Father, we're grateful for your word. We live in a day and an age where there is so much confusion about Jesus. And we come to your word and it's not very complicated. And I pray for those in the room that we would know and understand and accept the truth about who Jesus is. That we would not stand in this room and sing to a Jesus that we've invented in our minds, but that we would sing to the true Messiah, our King and our Priest 
and our warrior judge. Father, I pray for those who are here who have never heard the truth about Jesus. They've never trusted in the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And I pray that they would do that today, that your truth would pierce their hearts. Father, be honored as we sing to our king and our priest and our judge. We pray in his name. Amen.